0: Please read with me the passage on which today's gospel lesson is based. It comes from Luke chapter 24. I'll be reading from verses 36 to 49. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? "'He said to them, "'This is what I told you "'while I was still with you. "'Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me "'in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms.' "'Then he opened their minds "'so they could understand the scriptures. "'He told them, "'This is what is written. "'The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead "'on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins "'will be preached in his name to all nations, "'beginning at Jerusalem. "'You are witnesses of these things.' I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And this is God's word. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is about a real bodily resurrection. And so the risen Jesus does three things here to renew us, to shape his disciples, to empower his church in this text. And because he empowers his disciples, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, that means he can do the same thing to you as well. That it, number one, the resurrection reasons with you. Two, fulfills you. And lastly, heals you. Reasons with you, fulfills you, and heals you. First, the resurrection of Jesus Christ reasons with you. How? It appeals to your senses. It reasons with you. Verse 38, Jesus asks... The cognitive question why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your minds look at my hands look at my feet it is i touch me and see verse 41 he says do you have something to eat over and over jesus christ is appealing to our senses the audible senses the visual senses the tactile senses and what is he saying i'm really alive i've risen from the dead This isn't some hallucination. You don't hallucinate in groups. In other words, the resurrection is real. The resurrection is true. Jesus Christ literally, physically, historically, not figuratively, not symbolically rose from the dead. The Apostle Paul says that is of first importance You cannot cross any spiritual bridges. You will never grow as a Christian unless you first believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Tim Keller says it like this. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you have to accept everything he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he had said? In other words, every door that leads to a relationship with God hinges Every door that grows your relationship with God hinges on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of modern people, they don't buy into a physical resurrection. They don't buy into a a bodily resurrection. But think about this. There's a couple problems with dismissing the gospel as just plain fiction. First, scholars will tell you that the gospels... The four books of the New Testament, the first four books of the New Testament, they're not a way that you would write ancient fiction, ancient literature. Not then, and certainly not how we would write fiction today. Because if you wanted to tell a good fictional story, you would want to do what? You'd want to inject thunder, and action, and drama, a dramatic return. If you've seen either of the Justice League movies with Superman's return, you see that, right? That's not what happens here. Instead, you have Mary Magdalene, who is an outcast, She was the first one to see Jesus. She doesn't even recognize Jesus. And how does Jesus appear here? Is there power? Is there screaming? Is there thunder? Is there dread? No. He says, he asks, do you have anything to eat? Verse 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And verse 43, I mean, they spent three verses to talk about him asking for food, then giving him food, and then him eating the food. Ancient fiction was never written this way, couldn't be written this way. They had to be very economical with their words. If you're making up a story about the resurrected Jesus, you wouldn't include mundane, boring details like this. So why is it here? Why is it printed here? And the only sensible answer is that it must have happened. Luke, who is the author, is giving us news. He's giving us eyewitness accounting. You see that? The second thing we see is that the people say, well, the modern scientific view, the modern scientific worldview says that the resurrection is impossible. I mean, back then, people believed in this kind of stuff. They believed in miracles. But we're a much more advanced culture now. But the reality is, if you think about it, scholars will tell you that in the ancient times they didn't believe in the resurrection either if you look at the text Jesus appears and he says it is I touch me and once they saw him did they say yes I knew it right now I get it no that's not what he said after they, after they saw Jesus in verse 41 they still didn't believe That's what the text, it even says it right here they still didn't believe and that makes sense N.T. Wright, a pretty famous scholar and theologian, he says it this way, it cannot be stressed too strongly that first century Jews were not expecting people to rise from the dead as isolated individuals. In other words, the modern and ancient worldviews, they both say that the resurrection is absolutely impossible. None of the disciples, in a sense, none of the disciples even conceived that Jesus would rise again from the dead after the death of Jesus. Mary Magdalene thought the body was stolen. The disciple Thomas refused to accept it until he saw Jesus, until he heard Jesus, until he was invited to touch Jesus. It wouldn't have made sense, if you think about it, to talk about, to write about, to confess, to profess, to die for, what they were claiming unless it actually happened. Chuck Colson, now Chuck Colson was, he served in President Richard Nixon's administration. He became a Christian after he was jailed for his involvement in the Watergate scandal. He says this, I know that the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? How? Because 12 men testified that they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead, then proclaimed that truth 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten and tortured and stoned and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it wasn't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles kept a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible why are we saying this right now today are you struggling with doubt doubt in who jesus is doubt in what he did do not dismiss the resurrection let the gospel let the text let the bible let the resurrection of jesus argue with you it's the beginning of any good relationship it begins with arguments Because through arguments, you start to understand. You start to know. You start to get clarity. They overlooked Jesus before, and they crucified him. And as a result, they overlooked salvation. Don't do it again. The second thing that the resurrection of Jesus does is it fulfills us. When somebody dies, you try very hard to keep the memory of them alive. I mean, your memory starts to fade is right, in Seattle, Tom Hanks is talking to his son, and his son says, I'm starting to forget what she looks like. And so Tom Hanks, in his very tender moment with his son, starts to recount and retell all the beautiful things about his wife, about the child's mother. There was a recent movie not too long ago called Three Billboards, and uh, it's about a, a mother who tragically loses her daughter What does she do? She keeps her room just the way that it was. And you could do that. You can keep the room the way it was. It's your way of saying, I still feel as if you're with me. I'm still hanging on to you. I can't let go. But you see, that only makes you long for that person more. But if you notice, as unique as Jesus' claims are, today, we don't even know where his tomb is. I mean, there are lots of leaders, lots of martyrs. You can go and visit their tombs. Almost, they're almost like shrines. But there's no evidence that they ever did that for Jesus. Why? I mean, how do you lose the tomb of Jesus? It's because the tomb didn't matter. He rose again. Why didn't they need his shroud or his grave clothes? They didn't need his shroud or his grave clothes because they had him. And in verses 41 to 43, he eats with them. Now think about this. That's a very significant. Why? Because of all the things that Jesus could have done after he rose from the dead, he chose to eat with his disciples. It's one of the last things he did before he died. And it's one of the first things he did after he rose again. What is he saying? I long, I've longed to be with you. In the ancient times, when people ate with you, there was no electricity back then. The evening hours were incredibly precious So to bring somebody in to eat with you, to invite them in, it's not just to a meal, but into intimacy, into the most private part of your life, the most valuable part of your day, into your family. And you're saying what? You are in, you are family. I love you. You are welcome. And what Jesus is saying here is what then? You are in, you are welcome, you are family, and I have made a way to be with you forever, to be intimate with you forever. Now, A lot of us, a lot of us have this innate sense that if we have that one person who would just love us completely, if I could have just find that one person who would love me totally, if I could have intimacy with that person, it would make everything in my life, right? It makes my problems seem minuscule because I have this love that I've longed for. We fantasize about that person. We dream about that person. We're constantly looking for that person. Only Jesus Christ is that great hero. Only he is that Prince Charming that exceeds every storybook love. And he says, you can have me. You don't, even have to, you don't have to fantasize about me. I died and I rose again so that I can be with you forever. Because of the resurrection, we know that the great lover, our ultimate hero, the embodiment of every hero, The true king that we've been looking for all our lives, the true king that we need is alive. And he says, I mean, it made it a priority, dine with me. Be intimate with me. Jesus Christ rose again from the dead to be intimate with you. You are that precious to him. The resurrection means that we can finally have that love that we've been looking for all of our lives. Jesus is the embodiment of that love. He is the fulfillment of all of our deepest desires. So if you're lonely, I mean, in this season, in this past year, we, are, we just hear stories of isolation and desperation. So if you're clouded with loneliness, know that Jesus Christ suffered the infinite loneliness on the cross so that he can be with you. Lastly, lastly, the resurrection heals. The resurrection of Jesus heals. How does it heal? Verse 40. He showed them his hands and his feet. And what's their response? There was disbelief, but there was joy. Now why did he do that? Why didn't he say, come on guys, look into my eyes. You know me, it's me. Why did he show them his hands and his feet? And the answer is, it's because of his wounds. But if the body is glorified, Why are his wounds still there? Now think about this. There are some stories, despite bad things happening in this story, something good always comes from it. That's what makes a pretty good one-and-a-half-hour movie or two-hour movie or a good novel. But an even better kind of story is when those bad things culminate and serve to be part of the happy ending. The happy ending couldn't have happened without those bad things happening. The bad things are taken up and swallowed up in the joy and the celebration. Now, several years ago, a decade ago, there was a movie called Signs. In the movie Signs, you have a lot of bad things. You have the protagonist's wife. She's killed in an accident. The brother of the protagonist. His baseball career is a mess. You have a little boy, his son, who's got terrible asthma. The daughter, she has like OCD. She drinks water, glasses of water, and she doesn't like it because every time she drinks, takes a sip, it's dirty. And so she leaves these dirty glasses of water half-filled everywhere, on the TV, on the, and they just constantly just, just littered around the house. And then, of course, aliens invade the world. One thing after another. It's just all bad. And it's serial. It's constantly bad. Life is an absolute disaster. Everyone is losing faith. Everything is getting worse. The main character who was a priest, he's lost his faith. Then suddenly at the end, there's joy. There's joy. And and it's because it's it's not just uh, that there's redemption in spite of these bad things happening. But every single one of those bad things are part. They contribute to the redemption life flashes and all the sorrows all of a sudden make sense you had to go through them as his wife dies she tells her husband to tell his brother swing away he was a baseball player swing away the brother has a bat on the wall it kind of was a reminder throughout the movie of his failure of his uh, he's a he's like a loser they say Used to remind them of all of what he once was. But now it actually comes to use. So he takes the bat off the wall. He's swinging at the aliens. And he hits accidentally cups of water that are lying around and littered around the house. And he turns. They realize that water is poisonous to these aliens. The family is restored. Trust within the family is restored. It wasn't there before. Faith is restored. Everything is better than when the movie had started. And the reality is, it gets even better than that. Remember Lord of the Rings? At the end of the the movie, but at the end of the book, Frodo says what? Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? In the greatest narratives, joy... Swallows up all the despair, all the sorrow. And at the end, the sorrows merely contribute, they work. They're almost a slave to the joy that is coming. And the gospel is a narrative. The gospel is a narrative that begins with creation followed by sin and darkness and evil. Then the ultimate king arrives and he absorbs the sin. He absorbs the evil. There's darkness everywhere surrounding him. There's an earthquake. The temple curtain is torn in two. He is weeping and he dies. But through that death, death is swallowed up in victory. It's a narrative. And what makes it amazing is that that restoration, it sets off The restoration of the world that will culminate in the king's return, and it's all true. It's all true. You know what that means? One day, if you're a Christian, every despair that you've experienced will turn to joy. Every loss that you've ever incurred will lead to a reunion. Every hurt, every tear will be wiped away by Jesus himself. That's what the Bible actually says, that he will wipe away your tears. Jesus shows his disciples the nail scars. Why? Because up to three days ago, the disciples had in their minds that when Jesus Christ is king, I get to be a part of his palace. I will be a part of his administration. I will be a part of his kingdom. It's going to be great. I'm finally going to be powerful and wealthy and known. Then the nails. Then the nails. And when those nails were driven into his hands and feet, you might as well have been driven into the hearts of these disciples like a stake. Their lives were over. But then Jesus Christ returns. And he shows them his hands and his feet. Why? Because what he's saying is, What you thought ruined your life was needed to save your life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us not joy in spite of these wounds of Jesus, but joy through the despair, through the tears, through the suffering and humiliation and despair because of these wounds. In the old rugged cross, stained by blood so divine a wondrous beauty I see for it was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me and the author says what so I'll cherish the old rugged cross this isn't oh the gospel makes you forget about your suffering it's all good I hate that because that's not what the gospel is about Why? Because Jesus bore scars. Even Jesus didn't forget his suffering. God's salvation works through despair. It makes sense out of, it redeems, it restores, it engulfs and subsumes like seeds that grow to redwoods of joy that bud into greater joy and blossom into greater joy. Look at his hands and his feet. It represented defeat. You know what that means? Your greatest failures, your greatest losses are merely fuel for an enhancing joy that will overwhelm and overcome the world. At the end of the story, at the end of the story, our story, there is no more war, there is only peace. There is no injustice, there is only, there's no injustice, there is justice. There is no oppression. There is only a righteous king. There is no shame. There is only glory. There is no pain. There is only healing. And it happens through our wounds. Without our wounds, without our our suffering, in heaven there would be no such thing as bravery. There would be no such thing as courage. Heaven would actually be less heavenly without our wounds. How does this happen? In verse 48, Jesus Christ sends them out and he says, You are witnesses of these things. What he's saying is, I want you to go, I want you to live in the world, I want you to be completely shaped by what you saw and apply what you saw. What did they see? They saw the resurrected Jesus, they saw the greatest tragedy. Jesus Christ arrested Jesus Christ accused Jesus Christ tried Jesus Christ mocked Jesus Christ tortured Jesus Christ crucified Jesus Christ bled Jesus Christ suffering Jesus Christ died and also they saw on the cross Jesus Christ cry out my God my God why have you forsaken me what he's saying here is this is the ultimate despair this is the ultimate unfulfillment this is the ultimate loss this this is the ultimate wound, the ultimate blow. This is the death. In a sense, the son lost the father, but the father also lost the son. Imagine the father, I mean, imagine you losing your children, watching them die. And still, I mean, how do you rebound from this? And yet, this was the source of ultimate salvation, ultimate glory, ultimate restoration for the world. He did it for his people. God did it. We say, God is love. That's love. We say Jesus, so love, he loved the world. He loves his people. He loves his church. That's love. And by sending his people, Jesus is saying this is just the beginning. You are witness. He's saying this is just the beginning. I'm going to renew everything. I'm going to cleanse and heal the world of every evil, every injustice, every disease, every tear, every sin. And I'm going to do it through you. Just like we experience through Jesus. Look to the empty tomb. I mean, you may have a ton of issues with God. You may have a ton of issues with the Bible. Fine. Any good relationship, like I said, is gonna have some trust issues. But let the Bible, let the resurrection of Jesus argue with you. Reason, don't leave your mind at the door. Argue with the Bible. Let it reason with you. It will lead you to a greater trust. Did the resurrection happen? Is it real? Is it real? If you believe, it will shape everything. It will change everything. That's the meaning of Easter. As we head into the spring, that's the meaning of the resurrection. That's the meaning of Resurrection Sunday. Join me in prayer.